Hey, how's it going? Um, welcome along. Oh, exciting times from the High Performance Podcast because this is the start of our Euros series. For the next six weeks, we're going to be dropping a new episode every Wednesday with someone involved in Euro 2020, which I know is being played in 2021. We start today with Gareth Southgate. I'm so proud to say that he is a listener to the High Performance Podcast. He regularly messages me with a bit of feedback or some thoughts or what he made of certain episodes and things. And when he agreed to come on, um, we were absolutely delighted. And the things that he says and the stories he shares and the wisdom that he imparts in this podcast is going to be so valuable for so, so many people. Um, We're then going to hear from one of the most high-profile players in the Premier League over the last few seasons. We're going to speak to a man who will be pulling on the blue jersey of Scotland at the Euros. We will have a conversation with, I'd argue, the most high-profile casualty from the Wales squad who didn't make the cut, and that will be a really interesting conversation. We will also speak to a man who has played for the biggest clubs in the UK. People keep on saying, where is this guy? Why is this guy not involved in the game at the moment? Well, he is determined to get back into football and he will be talking to us about that. He's played for England. He knows what it takes to win the biggest trophies. So that'll be an amazing conversation. And we will also finish after the tournament with the Scotland boss, Steve Clark, who will join us for one of the high-performance Euro 2020 specials. So get ready for some really good episodes over the next six weeks. And we're doing all this in conjunction with our partner, Whoop. Now, I know some people at this point go, right, I'll just zip past the ads. But let me just really quickly explain something, okay? Um, because of the popularity and the success of this podcast, we have a lot of people wanting to advertise with us and be a partner and have these kinds of conversations. We will only sit here and talk to you about things that we genuinely believe can get you closer to high performance. And Whoop, our partner for these Euro 2020 specials, are exactly that. Because they have created wearable tech that gives you genuine feedback on your sleep, on your recovery, on how much effort you're putting into the gym to just get you working to your absolute limits. Now, I remember first seeing Steph Curry, the NBA player in the States, wearing this kind of black band on his wrist. And I thought, what? what is that? Uh, it wasn't a watch and I, I couldn't really work out what it was. And Whoop was first created for professional athletes and the good news is it's now available to you. So this is how it works. It exists with three main key pillars, sleep, strain and recover. Recover we're going to delve into in another episode because I think that is where real high performance can be found. Sleep I can't wait to investigate and talk to you about because I genuinely struggle to get enough sleep. I have a bit of insomnia um, so sleep will be interesting and I can't wait to see what feedback I get. But I want to talk to you about strain. So my Whoop band arrived um, a couple of days ago. I'm wearing it now. It takes about four days to start to give me genuine feedback about my recovery, my sleep, my effort when I'm working out and things. And then I can start working out according to what the Whoop band tells me I should be doing. So it basically, when it comes to strain, it, um, it gauges the effort you're putting in on a scale of 0 to 21. And the way it works is that it basically measures your cardiovascular load. So it measures how hard you're working and then it gives you a score. The interesting thing is that it doesn't just measure your workouts, but all the other stresses and the other things that your body goes through throughout the day. And then it will let you know the score you've had that day. But crucially, like most of this wearable tech tells you what you've done. This tells you what you need to do. So it gives you information on what you still need to do to get to your absolute optimal best and it also gives you a score so if you went too far 
then you'd be impacting your recovery. So it's really intuitive, gives you loads of feedback about the effort that you're putting in. And the best thing of all, your Whoop band is free. Now, um, what normally happens is that you pay a monthly subscription, but because of high performance, we are going to give you your first monthly subscription to the Whoop platform absolutely free of charge. So here's what you need to do, okay? Go to join.whoop.com forward slash HPP. That's join.whoop.com forward slash HPP. And that's where you can order your own Whoop band. And by doing it through us, you won't pay for your first month. So that saves you £30 straight away. As well as that, if at any time in that first month you don't like it, you can just return it and you can send it back. Now, um, I'm going to be talking about this on the podcast. I'll be sharing my thoughts on how I'm finding Whoop, uh, what feedback it's getting for me, the differences the changes it's making in my life. There's also Whoop teams as well. So we're going to set up our own little Whoop community. We can all start talking on there, finding out how each other are doing. So get involved right now. Go to join.whoop.com forward slash HPP. You can also get loads more information about Whoop there as well. But listen, I wouldn't be talking about them if I wasn't excited by them, if I didn't think that this could genuinely get you closer to high performance. So why not give it a go and see how you get on? Right, let's do it. Oh, I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Welcome to this week's High Performance Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Please welcome a man who has possibly the most scrutinized, high-profile, talked-about job in the country, after the Prime Minister, and actually, I think that's debatable. But what did the harsh dressing rooms of the programme teach him about resilience? What advice would he give for ignoring the noise, and as a man whose every decision is forensically dissected? How does he manage to have a big impact on people with limited time? And what's the trick to staying true to yourself in the strongest public glare? It's a pleasure to welcome a man who had a successful playing career for club and country, who first became a manager in his mid-30s, And just 12 odd years later, was managing his country in a World Cup semi-final. Welcome to High Performance, the England men's football manager, Gareth Southgate. Good morning to you both. Nice to have you with us. I'm a bit more nervous after that introduction than Ah, I was before I started. No need for any nerves. Um, Look, I know you listen to the pod, so you know how the pod starts. What is High Performance? I've heard you ask this question to so many people and I used to walk around thinking, how would I answer that? Uh, And I think in my head it comes to that never-ending quest for perfection that we know we'll probably never get to. I think there's something that I've seen in winning cultures about doing the basics brilliantly, but then diving into all the other detail that can add the, the, the small margins that help you to win. And the last bit would be about consistency, doing it every day and year after year, so winning after winning if you're fortunate enough to get to the point of winning in the first place. So I, I would feel they would be the key elements in my head. So how then, if that's your definition of high performance, do you get to the absolute 
granular detail of things because it sounds like you hone in on every little element to make it as good as it can be. I mean, perfection was the word you used. How do you do that without becoming myopic, with retaining the bigger picture, which you absolutely need when you're managing a group of footballers? I think that's where the importance of team comes in. So um, I'm the one that get is the front man for the national team. As you said, a lot of scrutiny, but without having brilliant people with you, um, how can you possibly be across all the detail, all the different departments, everything that you need in place to be successful. So I know you spoke with Toto Wolf. I had a couple of days with them at Mercedes. What fascinated me was that their attention to detail in every area was the best I've seen. I felt it was the best environment I'd been to. And I've got to have an understanding of everybody's role, of everybody's world, a pretty good level of what excellence looked like in each area but I can't possibly know what all of my staff in the analysis department, physical performance department, comms department, they're the experts. I've got to help them, give them the space to be able to do their job to the best possible level. And if everybody does that, then the accumulation of all those things will give us the best chance of winning. So it's about culture then, to make sure that the people who you can't be managing on a day-to-day basis still are on the same wavelength as you. Yes, because in our organisation, it's slightly different to a club where people have a day-to-day role with the FA. So they've got maybe work with the junior national teams, maybe in other departments with the FA. So our communications department have obviously got ongoing dramas (laughs) of varying levels. Um, But then bringing all of that group together to work on senior team tournament planning camps so that when the players come in, which obviously isn't on a day-to-day basis, so again, different to club, the environment that the staff are creating is the best possible environment for the players to succeed. So it sounds like you've got almost two teams there that you have to manage then, Gareth. So you've got the, the on-field team of players that turn up and but the guys that are off it as well. And how consistent is your approach with both of those two groups? Well, I would hope very consistent in that I like the idea of empowering people but I recognise people have to be led and people have to be guided and they look to the leader for answers for approval for particularly in the moments of pressure where are we heading but everybody is responsible for creating the environment so we talk a lot about culture in every business in every sport I think decisions that we make set a lot of that culture but then having the right people in the building, you know, it's culture is created by people. It's not everybody will have things on the wall, won't they? It, it, it's what you do every day. It's I can talk to the players about how I want things to be. If I then stand on the sideline and my behaviours on the touchline are completely different to that, they give the ball away and I'm crouching down like Basil Forty. <laughs> then that, they're not going to think that it's okay to make a mistake or to, to play without fear. So people say sometimes footballers aren't intelligent but they're the savviest people that I know and they would pick up on anything like that really quickly. So how would you like your players and your staff to describe the culture you've created at England? Firstly I want them to enjoy it, slightly old-fashioned view of sport but important though. I think when St George's Park was built Dan Ashworth came in as technical director who's now at Brighton and we talked a lot about the shirt feeling heavy, the pressure, you know, all the things that you can be, you can allow to be the narrative around the team. But 
fundamentally, how do we get people to want to come at every age group, be with England, enjoy the experience, want to come back? You know, one of our big challenges now is we've got lots of boys that could play for two or three different countries. So it's not just uh, we're England. We can't have the arrogance that everybody will just want to play. Boys have got options, decisions, family ties with other countries that are quite strong as well. So we've got to have an environment people want to come. I think if they feel there's a chance of winning, that, that can help as well. But I think wanting to be there, wanting to be part of something that they feel is a high level, is enjoyable, that, that culturally is right, I think that is very important to people. Which leads us then to, if we go to the start of your career, when we talk about culture, Gareth, there's, a, there's something that's often intrigued me about your story, that you've a self-described shy kid from Crawley, that went into what from the outside looked quite a brutal dressing room at Crystal Palace of lots of street smart South London kids. And what often intrigues me is from the moment you're going in there to leading them as a captain a number of years later, while still seeming to retain your authenticity and your integrity. Would you tell us a bit about that journey? Yeah, I suppose we'd moved around the country with my family, but grew up school-wise mainly in Crawley. So a new town... Slightly out out the way, but I mean, people wouldn't say, you know, you're in the country, but to the lads in South London, that was in the country. <laughs> so went to a comprehensive school, 1,500 kids, but my parents were always, you've got to get your education right. So worked hard, but sport was always the thing that really lit me up. So I got good O-levels. It was, oh, okay, so you're the SWAT and how are you going to fit in? And I remember... Mark and Ian, Wrighty and Brighty, sort of giving me some stick one day about that side of things and Steve Koppel sort of trying to put them in their place to protect me a bit. But it was an environment where lads had had to fight, scrap. I'm from a working class family, but I can't sit and say if we were a family that didn't have food on the table or some of those hardships that I know a lot of the players I'm managing have gone through and a lot of the players I've played with have gone through. So I almost had it had a, well, I'm going to prove that although I've not quite had it as tough, I've still got the same motivation and the same desire, which I think people are always trying to test and question when you're making your way. So for me, it was a brilliant environment because everybody had come from either through the youth system or from non-league or from lower divisions. So the, the, they'd all been rejected and they all had a point to prove. So if, as young players, it gave us hunger, drive, desire. Um, but we maybe lacked a little bit of belief in what was possible and without knowing what the end can look like or needs to look yeah. like, I think you, you don't have that full understanding. But it obviously helped to develop resilience in you that period, particularly mm-hmm. when you go in and there are questions being asked of you. And I think we talk a lot about resilience on the podcast because it is so vital and it's a, it's a hard thing to develop in people because you only become resilient through difficult times. Yeah, I mean... Rejected from Southampton when I was 14 as a schoolboy. Left out the youth team at Palace after eight weeks of being there. And then constantly from then on, anybody that's involved in sport as the athlete or performer, it's a constant fight of injury, form loss, recovery, you know, mistakes on the pitch that lead to games being lost. So dealing with that constant battle of criticism and keeping your confidence and fighting for your place and... Yeah, I think that is just the environment that sport is. So 
inevitably you, you can't read that in a book you've you've got to go through it it's painful but what it leads you to is is quite rich i think what does it lead you to then well i think you go full circle don't you know you you now have the opportunity to help other people yeah. achieve more than i was able to and so you you have a better understanding of what that took and okay how can i apply that to help others which is going to be more rewarding in the end and you've got context and you've got balance you know if you knew what at 20 what you know now you'd be a lot calmer in some of those situations because you know you can get there in the end but those doubts and insecurities actually drive you at the time alan who was our youth coach at the time who then became first team manager i remember him saying to me you'll get everything you want in life but not when you want it and not exactly how you'd like it to be and i actually think that's probably right because i think if you set your mind to a goal you'll get there in the end if you're really driven to do it you'll get there but because of all the things that will go wrong along the way it won't be when you want it you want you want it five years earlier and but then i wonder whether you don't even get it if you don't have those difficult you know we all spend our lives going i mean you probably sit here now at the age you're at thinking if only i'd known now what or only if i'd known then what i know now as the england manager i would have done this differently at middlesbrough i would have done that as a player at palace or aston villa but Mm. the fact that you went through those experiences means you're now able to sit here and reflect on that that's the point, isn't it? Those difficult periods are the periods of growth, basically. Yeah, I was manager at Middlesbrough, having literally stepped off the pitch the next day. So, enormous leap of faith by Steve Gibson, who I'm really grateful for the opportunity. But in terms of actually preparation for the role, ridiculous, really. How can you possibly know? And of course, you're then dismissed as a... Did you think you were prepared? Because sometimes if you don't know what you don't know, it's kind of healthy. Well, that's true. You, you certainly think you're better prepared than you actually are. And now I look at what I know now and how much I still feel I've got to improve to be the best. And so you know how far off you were then. Yeah. But also, I also know we were doing a lot of things right. And because you didn't have the evidence that that was going to get results, and maybe in football sometimes you, there are times where you do all the things right and you still don't get the result because it's such a low-scoring game. So you're doubting yourself. And of course, we're in a world where everybody else is certainly doubting you as well. Whereas now you've got 10 years more experience. So it's like comparing myself as a 17-year-old player as an apprentice to a 25-year-old international. As a coach, a manager at 35 with no, not a day's experience, how could I have known everything I needed to know? There was a question that really intrigued me on this, Gareth, that I remember watching you at... Um there was an FA Cup game at Manchester United where you played them a mm. couple of days after playing them in the league. And I remember being at that game and seeing you and, and you looked like somebody that just wasn't enjoying it. You looked very different from the sort of public perception that I'd had of you. And yet when I see you now, say, in the, FA, in the World Cup semi-final, you look a lot calmer, you look more in control. So in mm. that period from being a manager then to now what you know, what would you say has been the biggest learning that you've acquired in that time? That's a great question because I think there's so much. Is Damien right, by the way? Are you different now? Yeah, because the level of stress then was enormous Right. because everything I was going into was new. I'd never planned a training session really with senior players. I was working through my A licence with junior players. I'd never managed a group of staff, never had to deal with the transfer market, never had to deal with agents never managed a board or you don't manage a board but manage up. worked with a yeah. board yeah. not totally clear on 
the style of play in every detail that we wanted. So then what does that need to look like on the training ground? So again, I was fortunate. I had some really fantastic people with me, experienced coaches, Steve Harrison, Malcolm Crosby, Steve Round, Paul Barron. So they carried me really through a lot of that. I had the respect of the players because I'd been their captain, but of course, total change of dynamic because within days I'm having to make decisions on contracts. And so when I look back, the level of stress, because everything's new, once I'd lost the role, I remember Steve Gibson saying to me, you, you might feel relieved that this has happened. And of course you're bullish and you think, ah, no, you know, nonsense. And then probably a, a, a week or so later, I was thinking, I don't, I don't miss being right. in that situation. And for a long time, I didn't think I would want to go back into managing because I think the brain is scarred and you don't want to go, you know, you don't put your hand on the fire again, do you? But then I started to do some work with the FA on youth development and building St. George's and it sort of rekindled my hunger for football. And because of the different experiences I had covering games with television, I knew the fulfillment would be coaching, helping other people to achieve, putting something in. I think that's that's really interesting because it almost sounds like you're at a place now where you're so much more comfortable with who you are and what you've achieved that you can talk in a way and do things that you couldn't do when you first started as a manager. So, for example, you can now sit here and say a big driver for you is improving people. Now, if you said that when you were two weeks into the job at Middlesbrough, mm. A, it would have taken a, a lot of bravery, but also people would have questioned it. Whereas now you're able to say it's not just about winning a game of football. It's not just about three points. And I think that maybe that that sort of clarity of thought mm. and that bigger picture, like you've written a kid's book, right, to try and change the mindset of young people. That's a brave thing to do when you're a football manager because people want to put us all in a box. And I, I sort of get the impression that you're at a place where you're so much more at ease with yourself that you can speak in a much more honest way. Again, I think it's a really good observation because I think... When you're younger, you feel you've got to conform more, but I'm more rounded about having those life experiences and being bolder with decisions. So you're, you're absolutely right. I think you go on a journey where actually you start to think, well, I'm 50 now. Things happen in your life that you've stared over the abyss at certain moments and things happen family-wise or whatever that you think, actually, what's the worst that can happen? Yep. Professionally, I've faced that. So why worry? I've seen, obviously, England managers suffer and get ripped to pieces. Mm. It's not a job that very often you come out of well. But if that's my mindset going in, we've got no chance because the team will pick that up. They'll, they'll feel that. So what might we achieve? Because actually, we talk about pressure, but where's the pressure coming from? We've never won in 50 years. So let's give it a go. Yeah. We might actually enjoy it. Why do it. we think that pressure is what leads us to success? What, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I would have said it's the total opposite, really. So I've got to create an environment that relieves as much of that for the players and for the staff. But also we've got to handle expectation because where we are now to where we were two years ago, an expectation is different. So we've got to live with that. If we want to be a team that wins and is high performing, then we've got to cope with that as well. Can we get into your decision making then? Just Let's talk about that with that emboldened mindset, you sit at home or with your coaches and you write down the England squad for the Euros just before it goes to the press and everyone has an opinion on social media and everywhere else. 
Do you care? What's your mindset? Are you anxious? Are you wondering what they're going to pick up on? Or are you really sanguine about the fact that these are your decisions? Well, the worst thing I think for any coach, if you speak to them, is having to make selection decisions. And you know, because of having been a player, how desperate you are to be involved and how disappointing that call is. So um, you then know that there will be certain calls you make that will get more attention than others. And I think where we would sit as a team would, of staff, coaches would be, well, nobody watches the players more than we do to the level of detail that we do. Yeah. And at the moment that can be all-encompassing because there's games every night of the week at six o'clock, eight o'clock, ten o'clock. So, you know, there's times where I've got to take a couple of nights just to say, no, I can't watch a game tonight. Otherwise they all just merge. But what it has meant is that we've never watched the players to the level of detail with the ball, without the ball. So people will have a view, but they won't know the full picture of how we want to play, how we work, what the cultural fit is. Yeah. Are these lads that can be with us for 50 days when we're, if we're away and we can't see our families? How does the way that their club play map into the way that we play? Because we can't play like exactly how Manchester City play. We can't play exactly how Liverpool play. We would have elements of what those teams do because we can't ask the players to do something completely different so we've got to play to the strengths of the players but we've got to have clarity on how England are going to play that merges the strengths of all the players and covers the weaknesses that we have to, to get the best possible outcomes. So what weighting would you put on ability then Gareth so like their football ability and how much of it as the type of person they are so some mm -hmm. of the points you mentioned of you're going to be holed up with these guys for 50 days in a camp yeah. so like what how they behave how they conduct themselves what weighting would you apportion to those two i think ability obviously gets you in into the room the ability is what gets you recognized by talent spotters scouts whatever but then what determines how far you're going to go is the psychological the mental the cultural in the end the best players have drive they can perform under pressure they've got the hunger to come again they never give in they're relentless in those things i think what we would ideally then like are people who are team first as well now there's going to be a mix of motivations frankly for everybody you know everybody comes to work and we've got in individual motivations and that's fine because that is also going to help the team to perform better as long as those individual motivations aren't detracting from what we're trying to do and if we've got to take a player off after 75 minutes there's got to be respect for the player going on and the fact that our outcome is we're trying to win for the country in, in our instance or for your club whatever it might be so I think it's unrealistic to expect everybody to be thinking about the team all the time that's that's just not realistic but we've got to breed culture cultivate that as much as possible always my job is to bring it back to the team what does it mean for the team what did we learn from that how could we do that differently sometimes those decisions you can talk about sometimes when you make selection decisions or you choose players to play or not to play sometimes the the group pick up why you know i think in any business you'd have members of staff that leave perhaps for cultural reasons that there's a decision made by the management and the without saying anything the rest of the people working there would go mm, well I, I think I kind of know why that happened so that does because... a job for you then doesn't it if the other players realise why someone's not been picked 
and they're a good footballer. Yeah, because again, players aren't stupid. Yeah. They know why things happen. They know who's with the team. They know the energy drainers. They know the, you know, I'm talking on in any team now. Yeah. And I think the other thing that your senior players do a lot of the job for you as well because their day-to-day habits, the way they are, you know, we're very fortunate in our most experienced players, Kane Henderson, as an example, captain, vice-captain, they're unquestionable in their professionalism. They're unquestionable in their preparation. They want the team to do well. Of course, they've got individual motivation, but there isn't a young player that could come in to the squad and watch those two and think they duck the gym session or they duck the recovery or not a chance. So when you've got those role models within the group, new players come in, they see how, you know, the first thing you do in a new group is how's it, how does it work here? How's it done? And the senior players create that. So do you consult them? Obviously they don't pick the England team, but before you make your decision, do you consult the senior players? I talk to the senior players a lot. I wouldn't necessarily talk to them about selection. I think that's a slightly unfair position to put them in. Mm. There's always going to be a little bit of they're closer to some players than others. And they're also not watching the players in in quite the same detail. But I do talk to the senior players about how we're going to be, how we need to work, what I'm expecting from them. Why are we putting them in that group? How does their leadership grow? Because... That's an area that I think we've needed to develop and still need to develop. See, that leads to a really fascinating question then, Gareth, because I, I read a quote that Stuart Pearce spoke about you, where he said that, he spoke about you at Aston Villa, where he said that when Aston Villa were winning, you were never to be seen in the media. But, <laughs> but when Aston Villa started to get beat, you were the one that would front up and take mm. responsibility. And he spoke about how, how reassuring that was, that that spoke an awful lot about your character. So how do you develop your senior players to almost recognise the importance of fronting up when times are tough or when things aren't going well? Yeah, I think the best way is to reinforce when they do those things well. So you can see them at their clubs. Declan Rice, as an example, is captain of West Ham at 21. This season's been incredible for them. The year before last, not so good. He was out there, out the front at 20, 21 years old. I'm thinking, where's some of the other players but what I said to him was look these are brilliant experiences for you I I like the fact that you're standing you feel the responsibility you're not ducking after a bad performance you're not looking to push the blame elsewhere you're if anything you're actually taking a bit too much on your shoulders so keep a balance on that but I think reinforcing that that's a good thing hopefully encourages him to keep to keep doing it so it's easy to pick out when people aren't doing those yeah. things, isn't it? But if you can find them doing it well, I think that's equally, if not more powerful. And what are the traits that you had, you picked up on, you know, the captain and your vice-captain? Explain to us why those two players have those two roles. Well, first and foremost, because we wanted a culture where the players are driven to be the best they can possibly be. And they have different personalities and different strengths and different weaknesses. But we, we need an environment where culturally the drive is to be the best in the world and those two are you know they're driven to be the best that they can possibly be they also both recognize that although they will get enormous individual credit and both have although that's been a 
a lot longer in coming for Jordan than it probably has for Harry just because of the nature of his position and but they recognise actually it's about being in a winning team in the end. So they've been brilliant at, I think, helping younger players come in and settle. You know, they'll sit with them at dinner and they'll just make that initial bit easier than maybe they felt it was for them at the start. So I think it's the standards of what they do every day and how they are as human beings. I could regret saying this, but I don't think I'm going to see either of them staggering out of a nightclub <laughs> on the eve of the Euros. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. <laughs> but I don't think so. Yeah, I so, think you're safe with that one. So it, it, they're... They're small things, but they're not small things because yeah. it just sets the sets the tone for everything else, really. And then we need other leaders to come through. Harry Maguire now, from where he was, is now captain of Manchester United. That's an incredible learning experience for him, dealing yeah. with leading a club of that size. You see with Raheem and with Marcus, good examples of, you know, they are leading outside the game in in the things they've affected and what they've done so they're incredible role models for their communities that they grew up in for kids that think they could be like them for young footballers for and with the national team i think that has a different level of scrutiny yes people want us to win but i also think there's a responsibility to affect things beyond just the football and maybe that's impossible to do all of that but I think we should aim to try and do it. So somebody then that's had the good fortune of being in, say like that Euro 96 squad that is often spoken about for mm. the strength of leaders, the amount of leaders that was in there. How does the current crop that you're now managing compare from a leadership point of view? Well, they're, they're on the journey towards it really because in that team, you know, I played in a back four with Tony and Stuart who were both in their 30s by that point, I think. Paul Ince in front, Teddy Sheringham, and then Alan Shearer was my age. Gary Neville was younger than me, yeah. but they were all leaders. And even the guys that weren't captains of their clubs were leaders in how they played. Steve McManaman, and Paul Gascoigne, yeah. David Platt was captain. So incredible environment, really, with top coaches in Terry and Don. So the whole environment, uh, uh, it was like going on a soccer school for the summer because you'd learned every day. You learned something every day and you were surrounded by people who wanted to win, who drove, who, who if we were in a bad moment, were going to stand up. And our guys are still going through a lot of those experiences. So clearly Jordan at his age now, he's now, a, he's now won the league, he's now won the Champions League. People like Kyle Walker now is in a Champions League final. He's won the league three times. All of those experiences in the end have a big impact on the national team because the level of pressure they're used to performing under the the matches, the quality of the matches that they're used to playing in, that in the end does impact what's possible for the national team because otherwise all of their high-level games are with us under pressure and they're not prepared. They haven't had that journey. So in the last three or four years... We've got a lot more players now who have won trophies, who know what that feels like, who've won at youth level with England. Yeah. So we're building. You know, we're st we can't say we're we're the finished article because two years ago we we were winning games but not beating the top teams. We couldn't beat them. Over the last eighteen months or so, we've won in Spain. We've beaten Belgium. We've started to beat some of those top teams. Now we've got to do it consistently and yeah. every time and 
I'm not sure you can fast track that process as frustrating as that will be because of course the expectations are that you know we go out and we win I think you 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 end up knocking on the door if we're knocking on the door and we're in the latter stages all the time when we moved to St George's that was one of the things we talked about at every age group can we be in semi-finals finals if you're in those latter stages eventually you you learn how to get there and and I think that's where we have to aim to be all the time. As English football has attracted the best talents in the last 10 or 15 years and it's raised the level of our game and it's dragged English players up with it, that's that's only a positive for the England team. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I was fortunate to be in on some of the discussions. It was a very controversial reform of the academies, the EPPP, which I understand why it was controversial because a lot of that focus was on the financial and compensation for young players, which is a really delicate area. If you develop a young player and you lose him for peanuts, why would you keep doing it? So I understood that. But what it did do was it made us look at what's the level of coaching? How many hours are we giving? Could our facilities be better? I'm not saying facilities directly correlate to talent coming through, by the way. I think it's maybe the opposite. But So it made us review academy system and what we're doing with young players. And I think right the way through from there we're now seeing those players start to come through and there's no reason why the next 10 years for England can't be really exciting because the depth of talent, we've put a lot of young ones in very quickly. It should be harder for the next group to get in because the standard of player now that they're going to be competing against is going to be at the highest level. So can you see a clear difference then between the England teams that you played in and the team that you now manage? I messaged a couple of former England captains ahead of this interview just to say, look, what would you like to know? And they they both had different sort of areas they wanted to focus on, but both said, I'd love to know how different the England team feels now to the teams that Gareth played in, because the conversations I've had with former England players is they talk a lot about a fear factor playing for their country, pulling on the shirt, mm. sort of filled them with a bit of dread because the pressure was so great and the success wasn't. Well, yeah, I think there's been different moments because I would say my experience with Terry in 96 and the, the lads there... We had a brilliant time. We played really exciting football where we had, you know, we're talking about talented players now, but Steve McManaman won Champions League with Real Madrid. I think players like him were really underestimated at how good they were. And Glenn, similarly, I think we played in a way. But then what started to happen was as we went out of those tournaments, normally somebody took the brunt of the problem so David Beckham in 98 <clears throat> maybe Phil in 2000 there was always a scapegoat you know that feeling personally I kind of lived that a little yeah. bit <laughs> um, and I think there started to be well a, a feeling of if we go out but I'm not the one who's to blame that was almost the height of expectations and the, an achievement rather than actually are we thinking about winning anymore so yeah. there was a period where it became can we go out in a way where we're not, we don't get hurt? Such a dangerous mindset, that is. Well, it? it's it's fear, yeah, and and I would say that as was where we'd got to, and in a sense, coming in after the Iceland game, which of course was such a confidence-shattering experience for everybody. In some regards, that was a a good time to come in because, well, how how much worse can it feel for people? And maybe we can be a bit braver in what we push and things that we try to introduce. Yeah. Although 
clearly we were taking the team at a time where that confidence had to be rebuilt and within any management job you've got to keep winning matches to be able to make to buy time to make the changes that yeah. you make so we knew that in our junior teams the Foden's the Mounts the Sancho's the all of those players we knew they were coming through and all the signs were they're going to be competitive at European and world level because they did that at junior level but they're not they're not here for the next 12 months or 18 months and now they're starting to come through but they're not the finished article so that's why I think we it was important we found ways to win with the players that we had to keep qualifying for tournaments we get we get to a semi-final which was important and now maybe there's an, a new group that can we can now build with this as well so is there still a fear factor or do you not sense that anymore well it, it's unrealistic to say to any sports person uh, play without fear yeah. i mean what what is that it's a nonsense really because it's the hardest thing to do step over the line there's got to be some fear that drives yeah. performance as well but it's it's making sure that we're not consumed by that mm. and making sure that that's not inhibiting us to a level that we're not actually showing how good we might be. And how do you do that then, Gareth? What would you say has been the most effective way of helping them manage that fear or the weight of expectation? I think we've tried to be realistic in, if I talk with the media, of course everybody wants to hear that we want to win and of course we want to win. But I think we've always been realistic not so much managing expectations, but what's the reality of where we are? So when we were going to Russia, well, we don't know, actually, because Harry Maguire's got four England caps, Kieran Trippier's got five, Jordan Pickford's got five. We actually don't know how these lads are going to perform in this environment, but we like them. We think we can have a good tournament, but let's see. Now we're further on, but we're still some very young players. So are we a team that could win? Well, yes, I think we're in with a group of teams that could win. Are we favourites to win? Well, we will be in England because the bookmakers don't want to lose money on paying out on England. But you can't ignore that Portugal are European champions. have got some amazing players. France are world champions. Belgium have been number one in the world. So there are some really good teams. This is a high level. So let's be honest about where we are. But also, we, we're we not looking to avoid pressure because I think, I said to you earlier, we've got to handle that. We, we, we're now in a different place to where we were two years ago. If we want to be a top team, we've got to handle a little bit of that as well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So one of the like techniques that we've spoken to other people on the podcast series has been this idea of conducting pre-mortems almost like looking at what's the worst that could happen can we handle it and then we've got the confidence to know that we can survive a trauma should that happen is that a conversation that you would be having with the squad looking at what could go wrong and how we prepare for those disasters i think we've talked over a period of time i remember asking them before 
the game early on. What what are we going to do if we go a goal down? And there was like a look of horror because it was almost you never speak about that. You know, you prepare so you prepare a team to play in every phase of the game with and without the ball. But as soon as a goal is scored, the game changes. You know, the the, the dynamic of the game changes, the psychology of the game changes. And it's almost like I played in lots of teams that we were really well prepared for while everything was at nil-nil. Yeah. But then when a goal goes in at either end, it's all it's up to us. And so to actually talk about what are we going to do in those moments and staying calm and, you know, the, our first game in the, in the World Cup, we're 1-0 ahead. England have been there many times before. 1-1. We're on the verge of a week of being up to our neck in pressure because it's not the start everybody wants. And But we hold our nerve, we keep playing, we, we're patient, we wait for the right opportunity and we score a set play in the 89th or 91st minute. Now we're off and running and we qualify out of the group after 45 minutes of our second game, really, because we're five up against Panama. If that had been 1-1 and we're panicking and we're taking shots from 30 yards and it ends 1-1 the whole of the rest of the tournament can look different. So that was a scenario we'd talked through. And then, of course, you've got lived experiences. The longer you're with a team, you can refer back to games where, look, we've been in this position before. We've come from behind to win. We've we've led from the front and held the lead. We've won in these big matches. You can refer to those performances that, that are really clear pictures in the players' minds, I think. And on the flip side when you lose a World Cup semi-final in extra time, what what do you do in in that situation to take the learnings from it but not make it such a big thing that the players carry the pain for a long period of time? I'd be really interested to delve into what the post-mortem was after, after that defeat. Yeah, inevitably it was more with the staff than with the players because I think immediately I always reflect on what, what could I have done differently? What could I have, what have I learned from that? What have our coaching team learned from that? Yeah, with the players, we had we had to move quickly because we had a third force playoff mm. within forty eight hours. So bizarre situation, really. And at that point, I'm not sure the players were ready for that level of debrief. They'd gone further than we thought we could, if yeah. we were realistic, on the level of experience going into the tournament, on everything that had happened. So I think those lessons we had to pick out when we were back together the following season right. ahead of the matches with Spain and the, uh, Croatia again with the Nations League. So what have we learned from those games? We've actually got the direct opponents again. So we, we go to Croatia and draw. We, we then beat them at home. So we learned a, a huge amount. And of course, there were some physical challenges with that tournament to, to go seven matches. We'd never... We'd never had to do that for for a number of years. So, well, we know actually we're going to have to be physically in a certain place to be able to cope with those yeah. seven games. The turnaround, you get into the bigger matches and you've got less time to prepare, less time to recover. So you're thinking a World Cup semi-final, you're going to have ages to prepare. It's such a big game. But we play Sweden on the Saturday. We've got to fly back to St. Petersburg. We're, we're two days prep, quick turnaround, <laughs> and we're into a semi-final. So... We had six months to prepare for Tunisia in the first game and yeah. two days for the semi-final. So there were all these things that you learn through going on that journey that prepare you for the, for the next time. 
And as a reflective learner, what would you say was the biggest takeaway that you uh, that that you experienced that you'll take into this summer's European Championships? I know we always look for a one, yeah, a, a one piece answer, but I just think there are a huge number of things. The, the biggest things for me are actually the things we did right, and making sure that we continue right. to do those things right, but evolve them. So th there are things that we know are the right things to do around the, the makeup of the squad or for example we'd like to give the we we involved families a lot last time the day after a game they were able to come in so we know that was the right thing to do but we won't be able to do it this time because of the covid restrictions how are we going to navigate that how are we going to allow the players to be relaxed enough that it doesn't feel uptight performance environment because they can't get to see the family they can't we're at home and we can't get home we had more contact when we were in Russia so there are a lot of things that I think we did right I think the things we did we could have done better there'd be tactical decisions within the semi-final for sure there would be perhaps refreshing the team at certain times yeah we reviewed and we reviewed and we reviewed to the point where a few weeks after it I'm more depressed than when we lost <laughs> it at the time but I think that you have to go through that you know you, you, you've got to live through that so we didn't come home patting ourselves on the back for best performance since whenever we're, we're coming home thinking hmm, semi-final and actually how, how do we go further now how do we how do we improve how do we evolve? and who helps you Gareth in terms of for you as a head coach and who who's the one that sits with you and goes through a review of of your coaching style yeah there's there'd be a few different people so we have Steve Holland who is first team coach and my assistant I mean he's more than that really we've got such a trusted way of working it's remarkable really we didn't really know each other until I, I took the under 21s job I went to watch Chelsea work when Jose was there or it was actually Andre Villas-Boas and I saw Steve coaching and we chatted about England briefly and it just stuck in my mind and when I got the under 21s job I was thinking who would be the best person to come and work with these young players to complement what I can give them and from there we've developed a huge trust and a way of working that he will do a lot of the work on the pitch because he's a master in that area and I'll do little bits and pieces there but I can observe more and I can look at the fuller picture and I've got strengths in other areas so we would spend hours together and I think we're very honest with each other on our feedback We've got psychologists over the period of time we've worked with the team who I think are good at those sorts of observations. How are you delivering meetings? What messages are you giving? You're fortunate in a role like I'm in, it opens the door to speak with Eddie Jones is the two days with Toto Wolf. Uh, you know, he, he let me in on the pre-race briefing with Lewis Hamilton. And so you, you, what was your biggest takeaway from that small insight into the world of F1? I loved the fact that when you walked in the office, there's an F1 car in the middle of the office, which is quite a bold yeah. statement in itself. You can't it, do that with Harry Kane, can you? You, you can't really. But it was busy. a reminder that whether you're working in the commercial department, we're all working to put that car on the road, basically, and to create this team. And that goes back to what we were saying before. That's how it has to be for our staff, that every piece is important. And quite often that importance is only recognised if it's not done 
correctly because people jump on her. Oh, why, why didn't they? Why weren't they physically in the right condition? Why didn't the medical team sort that? Why didn't the commercial team get this bit right? And it's underestimated when those things are done in the right way. The the little bits of value it's added to the team performance of the team. I think. I think there's a there's another similarity actually with you and anyone that works in Formula One like Toto Wolf is the limited amount of time he gets with his drivers. You know, they're there a day before the race. Mm. Someone like Lewis Hamilton, who's a busy guy, there's lots going on. Toto has to make sure that message that he wants to pass on is delivered as succinctly as possible. Can we just talk about the challenge of how little time you get with your players and how you create a culture, how you give them an understanding of your England setup with such limited amount of time with them? Yeah, I, I think... With quite a few of this group, I've worked with them since they were in the under-21s. So Harry Kane, John Stones, Raheem a little bit, right through to all the young ones coming through now. So, so a lot of players who had a, quite an understanding of how we were and what we were trying to create. But then I don't think you should be shy of repeating the, the right messages. Now I know there's a balance there because players can zone out if you if you're going on too much but when you're not working with them all the time as soon as they come back in of course we get them quite often we're playing Thursday mm. they play Sunday for their club they're emotionally charged from the game on the Sunday so I can't give them huge amounts of information on the Monday I've got to recognize where they are they're still decompressing the club game but I can start to nudge them into okay we're not just put the kit on now we've we're moving into England mode. They actually pick up because they're pleased to be back together. I know when I played with Viduka and Schwarzer, they loved going home to play for Australia because they were back with their mates that they'd played with at junior level for years. And it's the same with our lads. They love, of course, playing for their clubs, but they also, so it's not, I don't see it as club versus country, it's club and country. They come back in, it's at the England club where they've grown up with each other, they've played at junior level, they've shared experiences over a period of time. So I think naturally they start to sit and have dinner. And that, for me, that was the hardest part of the autumn. We're having to do all of that part with masks on and can't sit for too long and hugely challenging for everybody. So those soft periods, if you like, are really important for you as well, not just on the training pitch. Definitely. I think things like mealtimes are critical. We've got a brilliant chef and it's an opportunity for everybody to sit chat get to know each other better enjoy the food so there was a period where actually we'd got staff meetings booked in at mealtime during the world cup and i had to say that actually look respectfully i'm not having this because i want to sit and eat <laughs> i'm missing out on the opportunity to maybe just go and sit with a player or a member of staff who i've not had time to see and also let's get together from it let's have one moment of the day where actually we're all just in together and we're chatting and you know an army marches on its stomach it, yeah. it it's a classic example of if it's not right everybody's pretty quick to say it's not right we're in a fortunate place where it's brilliant and i think it it adds to the culture yeah definitely i remember i was in argentina a few years ago with a with a team and walking into a room and the coaches were horrified that the squad were all watching love island together <laughs> I remember having the conversation that said, actually, forget what they're watching. It's the fact that every player mm. is sat in that room, they're engaging on a shared objective, that that's where the strength of, of relationships are being. 100%. I'm not a card player, 
but we used to play a game called Hearts, which is a sort of counting game. And so I, I was playing with Pierce and Adams and Teddy. So Teddy would be different, but you know, with Piercey, we were never going to be playing for more than a fiver. That was for certain. <laughs> but it, it, each afternoon we would have a game of Hearts for an hour a cup of tea and in those days you could have a scone with clotted cream at Burnham Beaches <laughs> which is now obviously not on an athlete's menu yeah. and we'd watch people walk through and we'd chat and Gascoigne would walk past you know to play tennis and then we'd be playing and then Gascoigne would walk past to play snooker with somebody <laughs> else but you know we remember those experiences and we were chatting and we were chatting about football and what so you're learning about the game and so for your players to be together spending time together that's part of how they learn the game. You know, they'll learn by playing with good players in training, playing against good players and chatting about the games and each other's experiences, I think. And knowing each other as well. Have you heard the episode we did with Sio Khaleesi, the, the Springbok Not captain? Not yet, First no. ever black Springboks captain. Yeah. And he, he sort of explains to us that the biggest thing is to get to the heart of his teammates, not the head of his teammates. Because then when you're up against it, 75th minute, three points down, need to go and score... You look at the guy next to you and he's not a teammate, he's a friend. And it's that extra 1% you get from that relationship with them that actually means you get the score and you and you get the win. 100%. And of course, the more limited the time, the harder that is to, to get deep in that way, which is why some consistency with the it's group. And then when you want to get into them quick and you have to look at them and think, bloody hell, he played in the Manchester derby 12 hours ago. I can't do what I want, but you're desperate to... Start yeah, imparting yeah. messages. It's one of the biggest challenges of international football or international sport, probably, I'm sure. You want time on the training pitch, but for example, in March, we didn't run a session for longer than an hour because we know physically where the players are. So we we don't want to break them. We're not going to improve them physically. So we've got to manage that. Mm. It'll be the same this summer then, won't it? Yeah, we've got to refresh but we, we it's the psychological refreshing i think as much as the physical we won't overload them physically but psychologically what we've all lived through we've got to bear in mind not just what the football season's been but what personally they've all lived through what's going on with their families all of those things will potentially play a part in for want of a better word the animal that walks through the door if we're not recognizing that and the impact on their performance from that, then we're missing an opportunity to help them get the best out of themselves, really. There is a positive, though, isn't there, to limited time with players. If you're a club manager and you spend 25 million quid on someone and two days later you decide you don't like them, <laughs> yeah. you've got a five-year contract to deal with, you can make the decision that that person doesn't infect the group again. And I guess yeah. you've had to make that decision in your time with England. Yeah, and that's very difficult because there are moments where you're making decisions yeah so Wayne Rooney is one of the most honest people in terms of his view of his performance where he's at so I inherited Wayne at a time where he was in the process of leaving Manchester United really not in the team so I'm having to have a conversation with him and I played with him he was a young player when I was first with England I'm having to have a conversation with a guy who's one of the greatest players to play for England, who I've got enormous respect for how he played, but also how he dealt with this little period I had him, because he couldn't have been more for the team, more honest in his feedback, more understanding of, no, look, Gareth, I'm not in the team at my club. I don't expect to be in the team here. Mm. So 
I hope I dealt with that in the best possible way, but they're the sorts of decisions you're having to make to allow the next ones to come in and sort of clear the space for the younger ones to go and have their moment. He would have been brilliant with the other players. I know for a fact you could see the way he spoke to the other players, really generous, made the environment easier for them to come into. Did he understand the decision? Yeah, absolutely, because he, he knew he was starting to need more of a break. He knew that he's not in the team at Manchester United anymore. He was When he went to Everton at the start, he was playing really well. And I said to him, look, if I'm picking on selection, you're back in. So, you know, I, I never close the door to players. I think that's always ridiculous. Why would I rule out the opportunity to pick a top player? But then at that moment, he said, no, do you know what? I'm going to announce my international retirement. I feel it's it's the time for me to recover between games, give time back to the family, think about what's next, which is obviously now looking towards coaching and those things. But we then had the opportunity to bring him back for the game, which created huge controversy because, but I felt he deserved that. You know, we've not been good at that. You know, yeah. players played for England were then no longer picked. So that was it. There was no contact. Maybe you got invited back to a game. Well, listen, I work with guys line. now who said, no, I still play for England. They never got a phone call, never got a letter, oh, never got right. any contact to say, what a career. I, yeah. That's a, that, that for me was, a, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it really. We're conscious of that. You know, we've got to be better at that. We've got to make the experience of, you know, we now present, and I know other sports have done this for years, but, on their debut, we present the first cap. We've got legacy numbers now, which I think, again, in other sports, you know, that's important. If I'm a player that played 25 years ago and all of a sudden I get notification that, by the way, this was your legacy number and yeah. it's unique to you and only, a, what are we, 1,200 people have ever played for England. When we've done those things, we brought former players back to present those shirts. Yeah, they loved it. Culture. They wanted to be a part of it. They were, oh, you're actually asking. Terry Butcher presented Gary Cahill with his shirt for his 50th game. It's quite difficult because Terry's doing the radio, so he'll have been criticising <laughs> Gary probably, but he loved the fact, oh, I'd be honoured to do it. Yeah, yeah. And and we underestimate actually what that means to the ex-players. And some clubs do that brilliantly, I think, and we're getting better at it. I, I, I think we can do more in that space. And is there a deal breaker that would mean you wouldn't have somebody in the squad? What are the kind of things that, so when Jake mentioned that example of in a club, you might sign somebody and mm. within two days you realise they're not, they're not going to fit. Is there any deal breaker for anyone you bring into an England camp that you just think you might be talented, your talent has got you in the room, but you're not going to fit here? What kind of things would you look for? Yeah, I think that if the traits you're talking about are there, they're probably going to show up at their club anyway. And so we're, we're probably unlikely to select them because we'd have seen those behaviours on the pitch or we'd have seen those reactions when they're coming, you know, being taken off or you'd hear things that were going on at the training ground. Right. So we've never brought anybody into a squad and I've thought, this guy's a disaster. We can't have him anywhere near. Right. But what will happen is some find it more difficult to be out of the team. And I think if you're out of the team for a period of time, you get to the point where, although of course at the start everybody's desperate to be there, it's another week away from the family and maybe I could be 
training and preparing for my club. And yeah. so I think some of those roles just need refreshing every now and then. And that's where it's an opportunity to bring young players in to, to refresh the group and bring energy to the group. It, if it goes stale and there isn't that competition for places and the players that are in the team don't feel that pressure of actually there are people who are genuinely pushing now, then I think we end up standing still a little bit. And part of that challenge is are the players that think they're guaranteed to play, are they feeling that, you know, because whatever we say, the motivation of staying in the team competition for places, I think overrides what what challenges I might give those players. It's interesting you say that because I think that there is the public perception that some players have come into your England squad. You've looked at them and thought, brilliant player, but I'm not having you off the off the field or you're not the right person. But that isn't that isn't the case, you know. Well, look, we like high performance, low maintenance is the ideal. We can go with high performance, high maintenance because I think that's worth persevering with and working with. Low performance, high maintenance, I'd be less enthusiastic about. <laughs> so there's, there, there are levels of what you're prepared to go with. And yeah. I think, and what the group, how do the group see it? You know, again, players recognise this. Okay, there's a young player that comes in. So Bukayo comes in from Arsenal. We don't, we don't know him really. We've seen him in the junior teams. He comes in, he has incredible humility. He's a talented player. He fits in with the group. The group are having him. You know, the group think this is a boy that, again, they're assessing in training. Oh, okay, is another young one they've brought in. What, what, is, is he going to be any good? Oh, okay. No, he is. He can play. And and actually, he's a good kid and he does the right things. They and test them off the pitch as well as on, yeah? Absolutely, because all of those chats over dinner and those meals and the other players are assessing them. You know, if if their conversation is humble enough and they're asking about the other players and... And they're following the right role models in the group, and the, the the other players will be assessing that all of the time. That's how we've worked for generations, isn't it? You'd have read *Sapiens*. I thought it was a fascinating book where that's how our communities form, and teams are the same. They 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 tell stories, they learn off each other, but there's there's a hierarchy being developed, isn't there? And there's a there's a team, a bond, a family bond developing, and. Yeah they're all seeing where each other sit in that, I think. Interesting. I guess what you're saying then is the door isn't closed to anyone who's high performance. If you're high performance and high maintenance, it's going to be a bit harder for you to do your job. But as long as you're a high performance footballer, the opportunity is always there. Kind of your own growth mindset means that the door's not closed on anyone. Agreed. But the detail I would give there is high performance just doesn't mean talent, mm -hmm. as in technical ability. That means that, you know, we've got forwards in Sterling, Kane, Rashford, Foden, whoever else, who work as hard for the team without the ball as they do with it. So there's no excuse for anybody coming in that doesn't have that work ethic. If if our top attacking players can do that, it's not just for the defensive midfield player to cover the ground. And those players have got to perform well in the highest games under pressure so not just against the teams at the bottom of the league but for us it's more interesting when they're in the top of the table clashes because it's clo more closely aligned to if we're going to play France or Spain or whoever else the big Champions League nights so why have England managers in the past always picked from the bigger clubs because 
you can see the direct transfer from a Champions League semi-final to a big international game. Mm -hmm. That's definitely good evidence for us on selection. But I think we have also looked at, hang on a minute, there's Calvin Phillips hadn't played a game in the Premier League. We think he can come into our group and perform at a high level. And we've had two or three boys in from Burnley that, you know, maybe in the past they might not have had games. And we've got to recognise good players at whatever club they are. It's a good bit of education that for me in my job as well because I cover a game of football and a naturally gifted player you know, puts five past Sheffield United, for example, who haven't won for weeks. Mm. And we all go, well, Gareth has to look at him. You're busy looking at, has he been making the recovery runs against that team? And then following week when they play Man City, how does he perform in that game? Well, we're quick to say people are back. You know? Are yeah, they yeah, back? Yeah. You know, A team are back, but actually are they back or are are they playing an opponent that they should beat? What does next week look like? And what does it look like three weeks down the line? So there's this tension for us in a selection basis, which is normally the Olympic team, it's on the stopwatch. You're the fastest in the country you're in. This is a bit more nuanced because there's form, but then players can be in form, but not actually good enough to play against the very best. And then you've got players who you've got evidence of who have been able to play against the best who might be slightly out of form and of course whenever I'm releasing a squad I'm always giving messaging that is for public consumption whilst trying to protect players so I'm never going to talk through all the weaknesses of people in a public environment but then that leads to people saying well he said this about so and so and He's picking that one who's not, no, so, you know, you can be accused of double standards, but I've got to accept that because I'm always going to protect the players in public. So would you tell us a bit about the public and private perception of you as a head coach and Gareth? Because that famous quote was attributed to you. I think it was about Sven Goran Eriksson <laughs> of, we wanted Churchill and we got Ian Duncan Smith. How would you describe you as a coach then, and where are you on that scale? Yeah, I, I think that was Martin Keown, by the way. But, what was it? <laughs> but, Come on, no, take but, responsibility. But I quite liked the quote. I'm, I'm sure Ian Duncan Smith wasn't very happy about it, by <laughs> yeah. the way. So what would I think of that quote now? I'd be appalled by it because what I recognise is that Sven was being authentic. You know, he was a calm demeanour. What he brought to the England team where... Kevin had been a different type of leader, more emotional. Sven was very calm. And I think that helped people like Stephen Gerrard, David Beckham, certainly in the initial stages with England, that a lot of the noise, the hullabaloo around England was calmer. We're just focusing on performance. It's not all about banging the drum and we, we're going to win and we're going to do this. So he created that environment and therefore... Why is he going to be different at half time in a game? He was that that's how he was and he worked in that way. You know, what I know is I've got to be authentic to myself. Yeah. In being authentic to myself, I think there are different approaches you use at different times. You know, there are rare occasions. I think it's rare because I don't think people respond to raised voices as much or aggressive challenge, but there are moments where that has to happen, I think, in a dressing room to you might need a, a response of energy or, and you've got to shake people out of the psychological state they're in. But you've done that for a reason. It's not that you've lost the plot at half time and 
you're going in with a purpose and you know what reaction you're trying to get, you've got to have different approaches yeah. with different players at different times and find out what they respond to and, and how can we get the best out of individuals because I know that some wouldn't be able to handle that perhaps. So I'm going to have to approach that differently. Someone really short, sharp, no fluff, yeah. you know, don't, don't give me any nonsense, just straight on the line. Uh, others want me to, you know, lead in with a softly, <laughs> softly approach, deliver the the difficult conversation on, come on, this needs to be better and then fluff it in a praise sandwich or whatever we would call it. But some don't want that, you know. So Look. would you deliver then two or three halftime team talks to different pockets of, of that dressing room? We, no, we would deliver one talk, but the approach we might take, and again, Steve will speak at halftime as well, so right. he'll follow my message and he'll pick up on the bits that I miss or he'll take a slightly different approach with somebody and short period of time, so you need real clarity on the messaging, but also what emotional state are we trying to provoke in the team to start the second half and they're all the considerations i think of of a coaching team when you're when you're right. dealing in that space at half time and do you tend at half time to be head or heart like are you sort your tactics out or are you more about fight and spirit to the players i think it, i think the first point has got to be i think sometimes heart can be overplayed you know i was very much heart as a player and that's why I, like, I loved Terry. Terry broke that down. And normally, issues in games, the fans will often watch a game and say, oh, they weren't trying, they'd given up, they're not fit. And actually, normally, there's a tactical problem that the team is struggling to resolve and it means that the game's not going well and therefore the energy is sucking out of them because they're losing belief. So the legs aren't taking them because I've... I've been that soldier. <laughs> now, maybe on the odd occasion, there's a moment where a team have had a heavy schedule and they've got to play at 12 o'clock on a Saturday lunchtime and the first half just has lacked energy and there's got to be a, a livener. But I think those moments are rare with top athletes. We're seeing them perform unbelievably consistently with no fans in the stadium for 12 months. In my, in my head, they're hitting an amazing level, really. We're, we're not feeling that we've seen loads of top, top games because I think the crowd adds so much to that. But but I think on a consistency level, considering they're having to find it all from within, I think they've hit amazing levels. Because you know people that aren't involved in elite sport, from the outside looking in, we think everyone's like Churchill. We think you stand on a box and you ball at the players and you do it all the time, 24-7, full of energy. You're talking about a different kind of management. Sometimes it's like that, other times it isn't. The importance of quiet leadership has been downplayed for a long time. Do you think that... In elite sport now, we're finally understanding you don't have to be a, a loud show-off to be a successful leader. I think in life, yeah, we're recognising that business, top businesses, sports, every industry you can think of, I think people are recognising it doesn't have to be the alpha male. That When I was captain of Crystal Palace at 23, I wanted to be first in the running, last in the bar. You know, I felt I had to achieve all of those things to be able to lead each yeah. little part of the group. So and now I recognise, by the way, I've got to be out the bar so that all the others can enjoy themselves. <laughs> but but it, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And actually, it's a driver for me that people think because maybe I would appear a bit calmer 
a little bit more thoughtful that I don't care as much or I'm not as passionate about it. So it's a driver for me to prove to people, you know, that that does stir me. There's another way. And I think what we see in our league is rich with some of the best coaches in the world. They've all got different ways, but they've got to be themselves. It's got to be the way that's authentic to them. And I think as soon as you veer from that, people smell that a, a mile off if you're not if you're not yourself. I think um I think authenticity is probably the theme of this conversation, you know. And I think the reason why for you to be authentic is something that um we should really make a point of and just highlight is the fact that you're getting players who two days previously were hearing from Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho or Carlo Ancelotti or Marcelo Bielsa the most celebrated, most successful managers the world has ever seen. And you then get those players. It's so easy for you to think, right, I need to be loud and proud and bombastic and I need to show off and remind them of what I bring to the table. It's much harder to be spoken like this, thoughtful, considered, a bit quieter, but authentic. But actually, if you're not authentic, if you're not totally mm. the, the you that you've become now, not the you that you were when you were the Crystal Palace captain, if you're not this you will never be successful and you won't enjoy it. Yeah, and look, I'm watching Manchester City play and the level he's taken those players to, you know, people will say uh, they've spent whatever, but he's, Pep is a, has taken the best players and been able to get them to do things that other coaches can't. So you've got to have a real appreciation for that as a as a coach. So of course... In our head, you, you could sit there and think, well, what we deliver better be good because these lads are getting a high level of coaching at their club. And I know there'll be people on social media saying, blimey, we've got all these good players and this nugget's in charge of them, you know. And so you've got to keep proving yourself. You know, you've got to keep improving and proving yourself and make sure that what we're delivering to the players is the highest possible level because that's what they get on a day-to-day basis and if and if our level as a group of staff towards the players isn't right then they'll be onto that really mm. quickly and they'll 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 expect us to play in a certain way to train to be coached in a certain way to be looked after in a certain way yeah. but we can also be different because it's England and we're together for longer and we're living together and we're going to live as a family for 45 days and I know that happens at a club but not that you're living and eating every meal together and you know in the last world cup we had family illnesses we had births we had you you're able to support players that actually that's i love those moments because we don't get that we're not with the players often enough and and that's where you can really create an environment that you want but i know that you've described yourself in the past gareth has been an introvert in many ways that Mm. that your energy comes from spending time uh, in your own company so when you come together for an intense period like that, how do you almost protect yourself, look after your own energy? Again, very good question because in the shorter camps, I don't do that very well because I'm probably thinking six in the morning till 11 at night. You know, I might still be in meetings at 11 at night, which you wouldn't at a club. But of course, if I've got two or three hours in the evening where we're not preparing the training or we're not talking about the opposition... I'm thinking I can have a half hour here with this player or half hour with that player and just have a chat and find out what's going on with his life. And yep. Whereas when we're together for a longer period, obviously 
you can space those conversations. There's more time that you don't feel that you've got to fit those things in as quickly. So I found in Russia, I needed to give myself more of those moments of, hang on a minute, you've got training, you've got meeting with this one, you've got meeting about that, you've got a press conference, you need to give yourself half an hour here. Maybe that's to go for a run or something to clear your head, but I've got to give myself that space, yeah. So interesting. We've reached the point of our quickfire questions, which I'm sure you've heard before, so I'm looking forward to these answers, right? Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into. I felt that respect is huge and probably covers a lot of the areas, really, because it's respect for everybody, the, the team ethos, the lady on reception, uh, your teammate, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're coming off the pitch, respect for the teammate that's coming on, that encapsulates timekeeping, encapsulates preparing professionally for a game. So I think it's sort of the bedrock of everything, really. Okay. And the only other one I, I felt was trust in that yeah there's got to be an agreed integrity to the way we work we're, we're working with top people we're privy to incredible information about individuals lives that of course going into a major tournament would be incredibly valuable mm-hmm. so if we operate without integrity at any level i'm talking staff mainly here then that would be hugely damaging and I, and i think that integrity in any business would be would be critical you've got to you've got to be able to trust people so can you give our high performance community one key book recommendation that's particularly helped you go i mean i love reading podcasts have obviously become a different and i've got to thank you on behalf of by the way everybody that listens because you know you played a massive part in getting me through the lockdown to be able to listen to the messages you brought and I would think there would be a lot of coaches and a lot of people in the public who would feel similarly actually the timing of how everything happened for me to to actually go for a walk for an hour with the dogs and and put my you know sometimes I like to just listen to what's going on in the world but actually I found through that period it was really powerful for me so it's one of the reasons I was really keen to come and speak because it was almost yeah thank you for for delivering that i've forgotten the question <laughs> a book. A book. or the you book. can have a podcast yeah the you, book I, I mean i think there have been when i was finishing plan i read seven habits of highly effective people cool. and then yeah and then there there are lots of books so i was always into those management so good to great um so there are clues in so many of these different books aren't there that it's sad, but I'm always then relating everything I read to how would this work with the team or how would this work with my kids? Or So there's almost never a switch off, which is in some respects a bit sad. You know, you're watching a film and you're thinking, oh, that, that might align a relationship thing there. And can't you just, you know, I can see my friend, can't you just enjoy the film and get on with <laughs> I've got two of Damien's at home I I, without boosting his ego too much. They're, they're fascinating because you're searching for small messages that can help you improve how important is legacy to you i think we should have the desire to leave organization club whatever it is that we're involved in in a better place than we found it so in that regard yeah very important 
I was involved in the project building St George's Park. I was involved in some of the restructure of academies. I've been involved with the youth teams with England. So those things ultimately have been as important to me as what I'm doing now with the senior team because we've left things there or we've started things there that can grow and should benefit England for years to come. So I think that's important. When I left all of the clubs I was at, in a strange way, I hoped I'd given them value for money in that Palace gave me an opportunity. They made a profit selling me. Villa paid money for me. We actually had a fairly successful period. They made a profit. Middlesbrough made a loss (laughs) because I was too old, but we won the first trophy in their history and had eight years there, player and manager. We played in a European final. So, So I hoped that whenever they looked back, they felt that he gave everything he had and that would be important, but I didn't, there's a Wolf Mannion statue. I don't want, there doesn't need to be a Gareth Southgate one at Middlesbrough. That part of it isn't important because I know the day I left Middlesbrough, you're gone, really. You'd like to think sometimes as a player, oh, you know, I'm a club this or that. But the reality is the next ones are in. You know, we talk about the shirt with England We've got a great guy called Owen Eastwood who talks to us about identity and that sort of Southern Hemisphere idea, especially the Maoris, of this is your moment in the light, in the spotlight, and then it moves on. And that's how it is, I think, your your career. You should do your bit, but you know you're leaving it hopefully better for the next people. But then it's their moment and, and we're out of the way. And finally, what's your final message or piece of advice that you'd give for anyone listening to this who wants to live a high performance life i did a book for younger people that was called anything is possible why did i do that two things really one i do a lot of work with the prince's trust and so i've seen kids in all sorts of different environments face all sorts of challenges come through real difficult times and go on to achieve so i firmly believe that no matter what the circumstance no matter what you've faced, the the title does apply. And the second part was I know I've learned a lot of things that I think might help young people at any given time. And because of the role I'm in, they might be interested in hearing that message. It won't be different to a message they've had from their parents or from a teacher, or but to hear it from a different voice might might land and might resonate so that's the beauty of the platform you have if used responsibly as the England manager that it's not because it's me but it's the role and and what that role entitles you to do or allows you to do so it would be go for it in life you know You, you can get there there'll be enormous barriers a lot of people will knock you there will also be a lot of people in the background going go on get in there you know people like yourselves who i know will people to do well and love celebrate we don't enjoy people being successful enough do we you know it's like how do we you had joe malone on i've met her a few times fascinating lady and she's worldwide name brand what things she's created we're an amazing country really the size of our country the things we've invented, the, the the achievements we've made, it's way beyond where we should be given the population. And so we should celebrate that. And yeah, so I, I think for youngsters, 
go for it. I probably lacked a bit of confidence when I was younger and didn't go for things as wholeheartedly as I would now. And maybe you see the time ticking and you think, actually, let's just go for it. Such a lovely way to finish, actually, that. Really positive. And I think that um, to hear the England manager talk like that, I think is is brilliant for England, but it's brilliant for so much more than just England. It's brilliant for all the people here in this who are not playing football, not even into football, because I think that we live in a world, don't we, where it's vitriolic and it's totally polarised and it's heaven or hell all the time and everyone's scrutinised and everyone's critical and everyone's sort of scrapping for their own little inch. Mm. And you are an enabler. You know, you're doing the England job, not for yourself. You're doing your England job to lift up the others around you, whether they're the coaches, whether they're young players, whether they're young people who've been inspired by the fact you're the England manager. And I think that probably has been the case rarely, particularly in, in elite sports. So for you to be in that position and to use it for this reason, I think is fantastic. And there was never a conversation about being vulnerable, was there? Or about human emotion really in sport 15, 20 years ago. So for you to be having those conversations is, um, is doing so much more than just winning games of football but please do win games of football this summer. <laughs> <laughs> we know we have to win games of football for some of those other messages to yeah, yeah. to carry power. But what you've said there, it does worry me, the lack of just basic kindness to other people. You know, whatever, however difficult times are, I don't quite get the idea of sending somebody a message on social media and tagging them in and being abusive to them why would why would you do that we've been through a hell of a lot of a, as a country the last 18 months yeah. and i loved the fact that people would do the neighbors shopping you know we, yeah. we had a period where everyone was really we we're out thursday nights clapping for the nhs workers that felt good we're going to have to pull together as a country because we're going to have economic difficulties and we're going we're not out of this yet and so we need that spirit of togetherness to get us through and that basic kindness is the start point for some of that, I think. So, yeah, I think what you said is spot on. Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Damien. Jake. I really like the fact that the England manager is, like, as I said to him, vulnerable enough and authentic enough to talk like that. I don't think that we that we need shouting, bawling football people anymore who to, for them to be effective. I just thought it was so refreshing to hear somebody give us some of the detail, some of the subtlety, the nuance that exists within their world. I think you made that point in the interview that we live in a world of binary opinions. You're great or you're dreadful. You know, you're a success or you're a failure. And yet the reality is that for most of us, we live in that grey area in the middle where we have good days but some days we uh, we underperform and I think to hear that Gareth understands that and is emotionally intelligent enough to be able to ride the swells and the troughs is just a real privilege to sit and listen to. I think there's also a real element of bravery there because there will be managers who get praised for being passionate and for caring and actually all they're doing is leaping around, shouting and bawling, being kind of obnoxious and opinionated in press conferences and that gets mistaken for them caring more and like he says just because I'm quietly spoken and I deal in the nuance and and the the soft stuff rather than the hard stuff doesn't mean I don't care but I think what Gareth highlights there inadvertently is you've just got to know who it is that really counts like there's that old saying that that those that mind don't matter those that matter don't mind and I think 
he's more driven by influencing the group of people that have to buy into him, that have to trust him, that have to respect him, not the public gallery that want somebody to be the court jester, the, uh, the entertainer. And he touched on it a couple of times, but I think one of the real challenges in his role is that we all have an opinion about something that we don't know about. You know, he didn't explain what they were, but he said a few times, didn't he? You know, I'm dealing with players who've got situations in their personal life coming into a major tournament. All we will do is look at the result and the performance because we don't know and we shouldn't know about the other stuff. But that's where he's kind of the gatekeeper. And he, he'll take a lot of flack for certain performances from people who don't know why the performance was as it was, you know? Which goes back to a big driver for us on this podcast, which is let's change the conversation from just having an opinion and wanting to be heard to having empathy and an understanding that if something doesn't make sense, there's a good chance that we don't understand the full facts behind it. If somebody isn't performing well and yet they've got a track record of success, like you said, you've got somebody that's performed for years in Champions Leagues and uh, in those big games and yet they underperform, there's a good chance there is something that we've got no idea about that they're struggling with. They've not suddenly become a bad player. I have that conversation and I kind of feel two things really. First of all, I feel that England are in safe hands with him as the England manager, particularly, you know, vulnerable young men who are in their late teens, early 20s at the start of their career, competing on the biggest stage of all. To have him leading them, I think is really important. I'm also struck by the fact that when you have that conversation with him, you realise that, yeah, football's important and winning games is important. But his role is about so much more than than just winning games of football, actually. He's a man with perspective and whether that's been the perspective of going in as you, and some of the setbacks he had early on in his career, whether it was that famous penalty miss in 1996, whether it was the trauma of managing Middlesbrough and then being sacked by them. Whatever it is, he's a man that he's had those experiences, but then most importantly, he's reflected on it. Then that's given him perspective and understanding that's made him successful today. Pleasure to sit and have that conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, real privilege. A uh, real privilege to hear somebody with his position talking so openly and honestly. Oh, man. Wow. What a conversation that was with Gareth Southgate. Um, it was one of those ones where when he was talking, um, and, he, you know, he's measured in what he says, isn't he? he he's, he's not quietly spoken, but he thinks about what he's saying. And what I love is that sometimes we have people on the pod and they're brilliant and I love hearing from them. But, you know, some of the stuff is maybe an answer that they want others to hear or to change others' opinion of themselves or to control the narrative around them. I honestly got the impression that Gareth was just saying exactly what he thought. Um, and the fact that he has a team around him at the FA that look at social media and pass that to him. It's a bit like when we spoke with Stuart Webber. I think that I think Gareth is is protected from that conversation on social from that bubble from that madness in that world from that echo chamber of anger and aggression and I think that's probably a that does I think allow him to make the decisions that he thinks are best and let's be honest every decision he makes gets spoken about an awful lot doesn't it um well look thanks very much for being with us just a quick reminder this episode was brought to you by whoop which is wearable tech that improves your life it gives you information on sleep on strain on recovery um and you can get it for free courtesy of the high performance podcast normally you'd have to pay for the whoop strap you won't have to with us uh saving you 30 pounds all you need to do is go to join.whoop.com forward slash 
HPP um, and all the information is right there about how you can join the world of Whoop. Um, thank you very much to Tom Griffin from Rethink Audio for his hard work on this episode, to Hannah, to Will, to Professor Damien Hughes, but most of all to you. Can I ask you just to do one thing? If you enjoyed this, please either rate it or review it or pop it onto your social media and just share it with other people. Ping it into a WhatsApp group, text it to a friend, but somehow just pass it on because passing it on to someone else is the most powerful thing that you can do with high performance. Uh, It changes our lives. It changes other people's lives as well. Please pass it on. Have a great day and see you soon. 